Welcome to the latest episode of the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast. Today, our guest is Professor Russell Muirhead of Dartmouth College. Professor Muirhead is a noted commentator on politics in America today. He had a book come out several years ago called The Promise of Party in a Polarized Age. And he has a book that just came out last month called A Lot of People Are Saying the new conspiracism, and the assault on democracy. We had a great conversation with Professor Muirhead about these topics. We sincerely apologize, though, due to technical difficulties. We had to record our conversation over plain old regular phone lines, so the audio quality is not quite up to our normal standard, but we hope you enjoy the conversation. Anyway, here's Professor Muirhead. Professor Muirhead, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So our first question is related to the the sense of growing threats to democracy. There's been kind of a flood of books lately on this topic. Ben Sass's new book called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. There's How Democracies Die, Why Liberalism Failed, Identity, the Politics of Resentment, the People versus Democracy, on and on in the last two years or so. So what do you make of this uh, this trend? And what do you make of the argument in a couple of these books in particular about the growing separation between liberalism and democracy. Something's definitely shifted since the end of the Cold War. In 1990, um, democracy was the answer. Uh, people turned to it all over the world, from, from China to, to Poland. And we might add to that, markets were also embraced ac- across the world. And it looked to people like, of course, Fukuyama, that the formula markets plus democracy represented the final goal for for politics and the economy, beyond which there could be no fundamental improvement. And right now, by contrast, people look on both, many people, especially young people, look on both democracy and markets with um, a sense of discontent. There's discontent about the kind of inequality that market systems create. And there's, I think, an increasing sense that, that democracy isn't functioning to transmit the real will of the people into the authoritative power of law very effectively. So there are um, challenges to establish democracies in Hungary and Poland. Um, populist leaders are threatening the independence of the judiciary, the free press, um, changing the rules of the game in elections. And we see, of course, very vital populist movements from Germany to France to Britain with its vote to exit the European Union and, of course, in the United States, Brazil, all around the world, we see something new stirring, a kind of discontent and dissatisfaction with that formula, democracy plus markets. So democracies are facing a kind of stress today that, that they haven't faced in quite the same intense way for a couple decades. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, with that diagnosis. So one of the things you just mentioned was, was people feel like democracies are not translating the will of the people into policy. And there was a study that very recently came out and there was one that came out a, a couple of years ago where some researchers looked at polls on various issues compared to policy decisions. And they found that the average, that the views of the average citizen actually do not have any impact on uh, political decision-making. It's, it's mostly driven by special interest groups or big donors. So that 
that seems to reinforce this anecdotal feeling that that it's not working. So what do you make of those of those uh, research studies? Well, there, are, you know, the, it's not just those studies. It's I think the lived experience of seeing uh-huh. you know large donations, large donors, really dominate the selection process, especially in presidential campaigns. Now, on one hand, it, it seems like that's a, a form of, of serious corruption. On the other hand, what we saw in 2016 was a candidate prevail in the Republican primaries in the presidential candidate, uh, contest who really wasn't the favorite of of the of the sort of money primary. The big donors in the Republican conference weren't backing Donald Trump in um, in the fall of 2015. Um, and maybe that's the point. I mean, maybe that was part of the frustration of his supporters and part of the exaltation they felt in his victory was that this was a triumph over this sort of special interest, narrow interest that have come to dominate politics. I mean, I, I also think in a more situational way, at least in the United States, that there's a, a there was a gen, has been a general sense that the elites, which who do dominate politics, they're both moneyed elites, they're intellectual elites, they're credentialed elites, and they're and they're elected elites. They're 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 the small group that gets to literally serve in in Congress or be appointed in the executive branch. They've kind of failed the public. Um, what we saw was that elites restructured the finance industry and deregulated, not just under the Clinton administration, but you might say from Carter to Clinton. And that didn't deliver us to greater efficiency and productivity. It delivered us to a financial sector meltdown that threatened the global economy, of course, and also seemed to require an odious, a morally odious bailout of the very people who caused it by the average taxpayer. Um, and then elites also said that it was necessary to intervene, uh, to invade, in fact, in Iraq that the invasion would be successful, that it wouldn't take long, uh, six days, six weeks, but not six months. Well, 16 years later, it's still a kind of catastrophe. So the elites failed in foreign policy, they failed in domestic policy, they failed in the economy, they failed in the military, and uh, and it's no great surprise after those colossal failures to see many ordinary citizens look on elites and think, you have too much power and you're not using it. Uh, very effectively to serve the common good. Mm-hmm. So how does that tie in with what you talk about in your new book where uh, you, you talk about the, the attack on democratic institutions as well as domain experts? You call it an assault on reality that strikes at what we think of as truth and the grounds of truth. So what, what's the interplay between rejecting the experts and the elites and how our politics has changed. Um, you know, there's a, it used to be that if you wanted to disseminate something, a, a video, a, an essay, um, <clears throat> even just a, just a typed sheet of paper, it cost an enormous amount of money just to copy a piece of paper and mail it to, say, 5,000 people. Direct mailing is very expensive. Radio, television, phenomenally expensive. So there were gatekeepers who decided what was worthy of being published or broadcast. Their editors, their producers, um, and, and they and they looked to see. They they, they fact checked, and they did a quality control check uh, before investing and in, in disseminating publishing something. All that, of course, has been completely obliterated by 
new communications technology that allows you or me or anybody to say anything to everybody, to all 7 billion people in the world for free. You can put it on your Twitter feed after, you know, after our conversation and anyone in the world can read it for free. This has just completely eclipsed the old gatekeeping function. And, and it's, it's in one, some sense, it's, it's really liberating. In the other, in another sense, it's radically demoted, um, knowledge producing the authority and standing and visibility of knowledge producing institutions. What we see in the case of what we're talking about, which is conspiratorial thinking, we see conspiratorial accusations come from the dark web. They bubble up somewhere on the periphery, and then they're disseminated with amazing rapidity and repeated, um, essentially published and broadcast. And they've replaced good information with incredible distortion and sometimes just nonsensical fabulation. Um, and, 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 you know, my co-author, Nancy Rosenblum and I, um, of course, really worry about what this, what this portends for, um, the possibility of, of good decision making in, in, in a democracy. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think? You could call is it kind the, of the Gutenberg it, effect. Uh, it's, uh-huh. a, it's a amplification or reiteration of the old Gutenberg effect when, um, <clears throat> You know, when movable type printing made it possible to publish the Bible and then translate it into readable language, vernacular languages, it disempowered the priesthood and um, set in motion, uh, you know, four centuries of political instability where the rule of priests and kings was replaced in the end by the rule of legislatures. And so, and you know, I don't know if that's what we're seeing right now, the beginning of something like that. But we could be seeing something that, that really is a fundamental change in in the political order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that certainly seems like a possibility anyway. So with with that in mind, what is the task or the opportunity, particularly for the next generation, for the millennials and Gen Z and, and the next generations? What uh, you know, how how can how can we respond to that? How should we respond to that? And uh, and then after that, I have a related follow-up question. Well, the great sort of you know phrase that's that's repeated in colleges and universities across the country is critical thinking. It's the it's the ideal that that orients so much activity in in education, whether it's junior high school, high school, university, college, and I think this generation, the millennial and post-millennial generation, is going to have to cultivate a different kind of capacity for critical thinking and critical reading, critical watching of videos, um, essays, websites that are disseminated digitally. It's incredibly easy now to um, reproduce this, the, the, um, the aura of respectability. And it, it requires more discernment to figure out what's plausible and what's not than it did in 1973 when viewers could trust, you know, the three great networks or, or the local, pa- the editor of the local paper. So that's, that's one thing that the younger generation is going to have to cultivate. They're, they're much more, I think, savvy than, than people who didn't grow up with this technology. 
but it's not easy. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes I'll get emailed something and it just doesn't seem right. I start to poke around to see where the information came from. And, um, or I might think I have an ailment. I start to type in symptoms. And there's all kinds of bad information out there. And you have to be pretty astute now, pretty experienced at figuring out um, what's not just wrong, but unreliable. Uh, and I think we're going to have to cultivate the ability to, to hold things in mind as possibilities that aren't certainties. Um, to, to exist in a state of um, something less than complete confidence, to read things and, and keep an open mind about what we're reading. Uh, we haven't been very good at that in the last five or ten years, but I'd like to hope that the younger generation may figure out the cognitive skills that allow them to, to think in a way more critically than people older than, than them have been able to. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the things, one of the conclusions in your new book that uh, the, a lot of it is is in the preview on Amazon. So even though it hasn't been released yet, that's the only reason I know what you Good, say I'm in there, it's out there. <laughs> is you recommend that officials, elected officials and government officials, start speaking truth to conspiracy to respond to some of that bad information out there. And uh, so do you think, uh, I guess, could you explain why you think that would be effective? Because some people would argue that, uh, you know, the, the Trump base or, or the, the group of people who are following these conspiracies, not necessarily the same thing, are, uh, you know, they're not going to change their mind. And so uh, elected officials would kind of be banging their head against the wall to, to push back on it. So what, what do you say to that uh, response? I think that, um, you know, that right now there are, or over the last few years, there have been a variety of conspiracies, say Pizzagate, which is the allegation that Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman were engaged in a child sex trafficking ring that was operating out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Right. Um, There are those who may just believe that accusation, and I don't think I don't think they number very many, and I don't think that it will necessarily be easy to change their minds. There may be a larger number who hear it and and aren't quite sure. Um, they don't think very highly of Hillary Clinton. Maybe they think she's unethical. Maybe it fits with certain preconceptions they have of her character, which are, you know, I would say inaccurate, but they may have possessed them. And uh, and and it's that population. It hasn't given themselves over to a set of propositions, to a conspiratorial um, accusation. It's that population that can still be moved. And it's going to be moved by trusted authorities. And those authorities are going to often be elected officials for whom they voted. If they're coming from the right, they're going to trust Republican officials. If they're coming from the left, they're going to more likely trust Democratic. People on the left are going to more likely trust Elizabeth Warren. Um, than Congressman McCarthy. And uh, people on the right are going to more likely trust um, Senator McConnell um, than Speaker Pelosi. So, so when an elected official from the party for which one's voted um, ha- speaks out and speaks truth to conspiracy, as occasionally happens, we think that, um, that, that the 
misinformation can be displaced. And we put a lot of hope in that. It's not just speaking truth by, I don't know, journalists or professors or, or, or appointees um, or random officials, but by trusted officials that might make a difference. There's still, a, there's still, I think, a lot of trust that binds people to especially the candidates from the party that they generally vote for. So, so along with what we call polarization, an increasing sense of many people in the electorate to vote steadily with one party and to disagree emphatically with representatives from the other party, comes a certain kind of trust. And, and that's what we hope for. That's what we hope might be used. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, but then you have uh, people like Jeff Flake, for example, who end up on the fringes of the party and ostracized when they when they don't keep in line with the, the orthodoxy. And I don't know if he's responded to uh, a lot of conspiracy theories in particular, but but uh, you know what what do you say to that? Yeah, that's a that's a very discouraging example. I mean, I think he's he was a good example of someone who really tried to speak truth to his own party, and um, and became less powerful as a consequence. So if that's if that's what happens in general, then then this strategy of speaking truth is going to be one that. Is not widely followed. If it's a if it's a path to you know losing power and losing office, um, then then almost by definition those who follow it aren't going to stay in power for very long. I would just say that you know this is a we're, we're, this all happened within a couple of years of of Trump's election. We really don't know what's going to happen to the Republican Party uh, over the next three years and its relationship with Donald Trump. Um, it, it could you know, really anything is possible. So it, it, it may be that that and, um, price that um, Flake paid is not something that Republican officials are going to have to generally pay. Um, and, and, you know, the way you speak truth to conspiracy requires a certain kind of sympathy for those who are inclined to believe it, which is what gives the speaker authority. So it requires a, a lot of rhetorical nuance. It requires um, real skill. And, and this is it's very demanding for office holders. Um, we think it can be very effective. But, but this is, uh, at, at the moment, um, it's a matter of hope combined with speculation rather than empirically grounded truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't mean to be very negative. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. So uh, on on related lines, we have the in response to this kind of conspiratorial thinking, there's been what seems like a renewed emphasis on on fact checking and really clear uh, journalistic standards and things like that. But I think it's interesting that entire fact checking websites like Snopes, for example, are now routinely rejected by a lot of people on the right as a biased, uh, not trustworthy source. And same thing with the Washington Post. They have their fact checker, but a lot of people say, oh, that's from the, the, the Washington Post. I don't, I don't believe anything they say. Uh, so, so how do, how do we uh, respond to that? Uh, when, There's when research seems, that yeah. right now. I mean, the first, I guess, you know, when Nancy and I were, were, were working on this book, 
um, we're very alive to the to the incredibly frustrating difficulty um, in that that we that decision makers everybody faces in displacing misinformation and demoting displacing refuting misinformation. At the very very most frustrating extreme, it even seemed like there might be um, a backfire effect. Um, this is from research based on my former colleague Brendan Nyan, Jason Riefler, who argue that when you try to correct that information, you actually end up, under certain circumstances, um, amplifying the very information you're trying to correct. Right. And, and instantiating it even more solidly in people's minds. That's the most discouraging kind of extreme. More recent research has suggested that the backfire effect is, is very, very hard to produce. It's maybe not as common as we might have feared. Um, it's a very, very specialized effect if it's out there at all. And actually, there's a lot of research now that's not, some recent research now that shows that fact checking really can work. On an anecdotal level, I'll note that, you know, President Trump does cite the Washington Post, you know, Pinocchio check fact check. Um, when it's on his side, and sometimes it is. And that's the thing that's going to rescue that kind of authority, when both the right and the left occasionally find that it, it backs what they say. And look, you know, lying and misinformation, are, if we look back in the long sweep of history, they're not the property of just one party, of one side of the political spectrum. So over time, I think we can expect misinformation, deception to come from both sides, and fact-checkers, therefore, to be able to correct either side in different cases. And and it's that that that's going to, you know, augment their their authority over time. So I'm not giving up on fact checking. I think it might end up being incredibly effective. But listen, we are worried about the assault on democracy and the assault is coming through the attack on knowledge and and the obliteration of facts. So generally speaking, um, you know, political people want power. By political people, I mean, you know, politicians, office seekers, people who are really connected to the project of getting political power. They want power. And power seekers will find facts to be inconvenient on occasion. There'll be bad facts, facts that are bad for their arguments, facts that are bad for their case, facts that are bad for their cause. And when they experience bad, when they encounter bad facts, they will want to use their power to obscure the fact, ideally to erase the fact. So there's always a kind of tension between politics and, 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 and science or facticity, fact, the, the realm of facts. And, and facts are vulnerable things. Um, they, they can be, they really can be obliterated by the powerful. Look at the way the Soviet Union used to airbrush out, you know, figures from, from photos once they'd fallen into disfavors, if they no longer existed. Um, so it, it's not, you know, there's no reason to be sanguine or to be overly confident that, that the truth will always win out. It's going to require not just, you know, um, a culture that cares about facts and truth, but also real institutions. Um, the university maintains its integrity as a non-partial, non-partisan, impartial rather, rather non-partisan um, seeker of, of truth, uh, the, uh, the press, and uh, I think also the judiciary, and of course the scientific based, scientifically based administrative agencies. These are all things that are going to maintain their, these, these institutions are essential, I think, to the, to the durability of, of facts and knowledge against the attack that's 
not new coming right. from those who want power. Right. So one of the other things that you've talked about uh, in, in your new book and in some previous papers is the importance of civics education. And uh, so how does that tie in with, with what you were just talking about with the importance of fact-based institutions? Is, is civics education enough? Uh, because there are some surveys you may have seen in the statistic that only 57% of people born in the 1980s in this survey said that it's very important to live in a democracy compared to 91% of people born in the 1930s. So uh, what's your reaction to that? And, and is, is a stronger emphasis on civics education going to be enough to, to push back on this, on the pendulum that seems to be uh, moving in, in this conspiratorial direction? Yeah, I think I think you know that we're going to have to rethink civics education, um, and and really think carefully about what kind of civics education empowers citizens. Um, some you know to, to some extent, as as the O'Connor Institute understands very well, it's important for citizens to to know that constitutional democracy is not meant to be a pure democracy, for better and for worse. The representative democracy is not meant to be um, a direct democracy. We might, and citizens might, on balance, after a lot of reflection, prefer direct democracy to the representative democracy we have. We might, we might, um, or some at least might decide that they'd rather see a randomly selected legislature that's very representative of the overall population over an elected legislature. So there's, it, it, it's quite possible to prefer some other kind of institutional structure that, that maybe um, is informed by a different ideal than the institutions that we've inherited. You can, you can love democracy and still be a critic of the, of the democracy that we have, but that requires understanding what we have and understanding the reasons for it. And I think all too often civics education focuses on, you know, propositional knowledge that people might memorize, but not the knowledge that people might use to form an assessment of the democracy they have. And you know, here's another thing. I, I think as we enter, as we, as we now inhabit a more partisan age, I would like civics education to take up partisanship more directly. One of the questions I think good citizens should be able to answer isn't, for instance, you know, what are the five freedoms in the First Amendment to the Constitution? I mean, it's kind of nice, I guess, to to know that there are five and be able to list them or pick them out on a multiple choice exam. I don't know that that really helps citizens go about their daily business. But how about this one? What has the government succeeded at and failed at in a big way over the last 50 years? What has it achieved? What has it achieved? What has it tried to achieve and not achieved? What has it tried and really failed at? And <clears throat> the answer to that kind of story is going to be at least vaguely partisan. I can imagine some Republicans talking about how the government conquered communism and how Ronald Reagan was really elementally responsible for that. Democrats might emphasize that the Cold War started under Truman and was pursued by Democratic presidents and Republican presidents. So the, so the partisan inflection will appear, excuse me, <coughs> once we start talking about what the government succeeded and failed at. Democrats might pick out Social Security as a success. Um, 
Republicans might pick out the Great Society as an extreme that failed and went too far. Um, I'd like to hear more of that kind of discussion in our civics education classes. And, and, and to some extent, the account of what succeeded and failed will be, you know, will be contestable. Um, but to be able to engage in that kind of story is to be able to orient yourself in politics today. And, and, and if you can orient yourself in the political world today, you're poised to, to exert some power. So I think all too often our civics education just shies away from partisanship as if it would be better that it not exist at all, um, as opposed to opening itself up to the partisan stories about what's gone well and what hasn't. What do you think about that? Does that strike you as a good idea for civics education or or not? I, I For me personally, it does sound like a good idea. For, for strictly nonpartisan organizations like the O'Connor Institute, that'll put them in, in somewhat hot water. So that's a challenge that would have to be overcome. But, but what you're saying kind of reminds me of the the meme that's going around the Internet that you might have seen that says, uh, we we taught our children never to discuss religion and politics in public when, in fact, we should have taught them how to discuss those topics in a civil way. And, uh, and so it, that, it seems to be in the same vein there. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's being able to not just engage in the debate, but to hear these different accounts and hear, hear about the kinds of facts that that, that people look to when they tell a story of success, when they say, hey, you know, the government eradicated poverty among the elderly population, which has been, from time immemorial, a serious and grotesque problem. And it was eradicated, some might say, by Social Security. And others might say, well, the great success is, the, as I said, the end of the Cold War um, or the incredibly productive economy that, that you know, an innovative market economy has created. So, the, these sorts of stories um, really, I think, allow people to to understand what they might expect from their government, what they might hope for, what they might work for, what they might vote for. And, and citizens who, who have that kind of orientation, like I say, they're ready to they are ready to go vote. And it's not like you need to master a bunch of facts to go vote, but you need to have some sense of where we've been, where we are, and what we might hope for from the future. And there's no way to there's no way to tell that story. With I don't even have to. I'm not saying you have to be partisan or teach people how to be partisan. So there's no way to get into the story without having a certain kind of partisan inflection appear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's right on. So we're running low on time. So I have two final questions. The first is since we are the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the influence of Sandra Day O'Connor personally. Uh, on the on these kinds of topics. Well, everywhere I go, I hear about your institute, and I hear about the work you're doing, and I think that, at the very least, all those people out there who think that that some, there's something to be done in civics education are taking heart uh, from your work because I hear about it all over the place. So, so my congratulations. I mean, I I I think it's been a very, very consequential thing for her to have invested herself in uh, since she left the court. I'm very grateful to her for having done that. Wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that, that the word is out. 
Perfect. So our our final question is uh, millennials and and uh, you know the current younger generation are will be entering sort of the prime of their careers in the year 2040. 20 years from now, uh, they'll, this generation will be in, in positions of power. So what do you want America to be like in the year 2040? My hope is that, um, we will, that, that, that new technology will allow for a more human and humane kind of work to predominate in the economy. Uh, you know, as you well know, we moved from an economy where everybody was basically a farmer or a domestic servant um, to an economy where many people worked in dehumanizing conditions in factories, like in my hometown of Manchester, New Hampshire, to a post-industrial economy where the future of work looks radically uncertain. What I do see, you know, some people fear that technology will, will essentially eat up jobs. There won't be any jobs left. I, I hope for, though, a work where jobs um, multiply and where they're really almost always relational. More and more jobs are going to involve relating to other human beings. A great example is something like the personal trainer. It's a job role that didn't exist, or if it did exist, I didn't know about it when I was 10 or 15 years old, 20 years old. And, uh, and now, you know, I see personal trainers everywhere. But to be a personal trainer, you have to be able to relate to people, to form a human relationship. In that respect, it's much more human work than standing next to a you know cotton mill uh, for 14 hours a day. Of course, we want to also hope, I also hope that along with this proliferation of more humane work, that the conditions of work um, are, are ones that, that fit the content, the, can, the, the pay and the circumstances and the, and the choices people can make about their work are, are ones that allow it to be really fulfilling. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful, really, about um, about about the world that, that these very young people will be stepping into. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm hopeful, but I don't think that um, we're going to get to we're, these hopes will be realized unless we um, understand how to cooperate politically. It's definitely a big challenge. Yeah. but a good vision. So thank you yeah. for sharing that. Thank you so much, Professor Muirhead. Be sure to grab his book coming out in April. A lot of people are saying the new conspiracism and the assault on democracy. And visit us, the O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network at O'ConnorELN.org. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.